So far in our series of studies in Philippines, we've not spent a whole lot of time thinking about the city of Philippi itself. Um, We have just skirted around that. We haven't really delved too deep into what kind of a place that was. But we do need to take a few moments to think of this city in northern Greece just now. This is the first place where Paul has uh, planted a church in Europe. Um, And if we're to understand our passage this morning, we need to think uh, a little bit more about the city of Philippi, and particularly what it was like in Paul's times. The key thing is to understand that Philippi was a Roman colony, okay, in a way that not all cities or not many cities were. There are historical reasons for that. So if, if you go and Google the Roman Civil War, you'll discover that um, in the 40s BC, uh, after the death of Julius Caesar, Rome uh, experienced civil war in the empire. Uh, in 42 BC, around about 100 years before Paul's writing, one of the great battles of the Roman Civil War happened at Philippi. So what you have there is two uh, successful generals, Antony and Octavian. Octavian, by the way, went on to be Caesar Augustus, the one who issued a decree that we read about in the carol services. These two guys were victorious in the, the Battle of Philippi. So they found themselves in that part of the world with loads of soldiers who were now unemployed. The battle had been won. This army could have been disbanded but they didn't want to send them all back to Rome or even to Italy wherever they'd come from because it would have been dangerous to have thousands and thousands of soldiers uh, returning back into the the cities of of Rome and, uh, and Italy these already overcrowded cities so the Romans came up with a plan and the plan was that veteran soldiers of victorious crusades were often given land So in this case, let's give these guys the the land here in northern Greece surrounding the city of Philippi. So Philippi became a Roman colony full of retired Roman soldiers. Philippi was on the Via Ignatia. It's one of only a small number of what I would call motorways through the Roman Empire. If you wanted to move fast through the empire, there were a few of these really major roads. This road, and I'm sure you can't see it very clearly, I don't know if you can even see, there's a red line about a third of the way down the screen running from Byzantium, which is modern-day Constantinople or Istanbul, right across to the... Is that, that's the west, yes, of uh, northern Greece. Uh, so that red road is called the, the Via Ignatia. Philippi's right bang in the middle of it there, which means a person living in Philippi has ready access to a city called Dyrrhachium over on the, the west of, of northern Greece. Now from there it's only a short hop on a ferry or in a boat over to Brindisi down in the south of Italy and then you're straight on to another of the great motorways of the Roman Empire, the Via Appia and you're away to Rome. My point is just very simply, it's not far from Rome to Philippi. In Northern Irish parlance 
Philippi is pretty handy to roam. The two are well connected. So what you have here is a a Roman colony full of uh, retired Roman soldiers from the the Roman Civil War, but also subsequent wars. And then you have this ongoing link with Rome, these great transport links. You, You know the saying, when in Rome, do as the Romans do? Yeah? Well, I think the Philippi of Paul's day, you could easily summarize the culture of it. When in Philippi, do as the Romans do. This is like living in Rome, almost. So what, if anything, does, does that have to say to us? If, if there are Romans living in Philippi, if it's a Roman kind of a culture, why might that be of interest to us as we read Paul's letter to a bunch of Christians living in that city? Well, Paul's writing at a time when this Roman culture is starting to have a very big impact on anybody who wants to worship any other god. The Roman emperors had recently established a thing called the imperial cult. That is, the worship of Caesar. Augustus was the one who got the ball rolling. Augustus proclaimed a gospel. He sent a message out throughout the empire. And the message was that I, Caesar, am saviour and lord. Everything's all right in the empire because I'm the emperor. I'll look after you. Things will be okay. So you have Caesar calling himself saviour and lord. Wow. Now that would be worth knowing and understanding as Paul writes a letter to these Christians in Philippi. If they continue to go around saying that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is saviour and lord, then they're on a collision course with Rome and the empire itself. It all got me thinking, um, who's claiming to be saviour and lord in Belfast these days? It's not, not Caesar. Nobody, you might say. There, there's nobody uses that kind of language. There's nobody in Belfast saying that I'm saviour or that I'm lord. Maybe not. Maybe not in so many words. But aren't there salvation narratives going around in our culture? Things that rescue us from a meaningless life to a meaningful life. A life I wouldn't want to live to a life I do want to live. You know what the salvation narrative is in our culture? Education. So long as I get myself and my kids well enough educated, that's where happiness and advancement will be found. If I get the right job, the right career, if I'm able to find the right earning potential, that's the good life. That way lies the promised land. Or, or if our salvation isn't to be found in education, then it's found in freedom. 
shake off all those shackles, all that, uh, all those traditional cultures that we were part of, all the traditional religion that there's been in, in Ulster, all our religious identities. Shake those off. We're free, and that's where life is to be found. Freedom. The right to define ourselves. The right, the freedom to be whoever we like. So our culture has its fair share of salvation narratives, ways of, of finding life. But it's also full of lords demanding allegiance. The brand marketeers who get at us, who prey on us and our kids' insecurities, who make us desperate to have their badge on our chest or on our shoes or on the back of our car, all out of a desperate desire to fit in. It's why non-uniform day is the worst attended day in British culture in schools. Because kids are terrified of going to school without the right badge on. If it's not, if it's not that, maybe it's the politically correct public sphere that demands our allegiance to. We live in a hyper-tolerant culture that simply won't tolerate any views other than the ones that it, it suggests. Not allowed to have divergent views in the debates around sexuality or abortion or, or whatever. Our culture too has lots of saviour and lord stuff going on. So the believers in Philippi are living in a society in Rome where Caesar makes claims on them. And we, we I think, are not... Um, without people making claims of us. And it's when we begin to see what we have in common with the small number of believers living in Rome, or sorry, living in Philippi, that Paul's words in verse 20 really begin to take flight and have meaning. But our citizenship, he says, is in heaven. You may well be citizens of of Rome, politically speaking, but at the same time, you're citizens of heaven. You have a dual citizenship, and there's just no doubt which is the primary of these two citizenships. Heaven is the determining one. Folks, we may well live in Belfast under the authority of Stormont and Westminster, but if we're in Christ Jesus, he is our king. He is our prime minister and our first minister. We're citizens of his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. I think as modern day Christians, it can be a wee bit um, easy to, to misunderstand Paul at this point. We can easily imagine Paul saying, we're citizens of heaven. And so we live on earth waiting until we can go there to to be in heaven with Jesus. But that's not what he's saying. And it's certainly not what he means. If if someone said to a citizen of Philippi, or or if someone in Philippi said, we're citizens of Rome, uh, they didn't mean, and so we're waiting to go back someday to Rome. 
going to go and live there in the city. Being a citizen of a colony works exactly the other way around. So if, if we're holding that idea, let's, let's turn it around entirely. A citizen of Philippi isn't trying to go to Rome. A Roman citizen in Philippi is trying to bring the culture of Rome to the city of Philippi and the surrounding area. Citizens, you see, expand the influence of the empire in the colony and around. That's the picture that Paul has in verse 20. This church is a, it's a colony of heaven. So as believers in Jesus who live in Belfast, we have a responsibility not to sit with our arms folded, with our doors locked, holding tight, wait until Jesus whisks us off to heaven. No. We're to bring the life of the king to the city where he has placed us. Isn't that what we pray every time we pray the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The life flows from heaven to earth. Folks, we don't, don't misunderstand me here. I know we don't feel able for that task. I know that we don't very often feel like we're, we're succeeding. But this is our glorious calling, to be citizens of heaven, even while we live in Ballyhackamore and in Belfast. Just to make, make sense of what Paul goes on to say, we need to hold this image of Roman citizens in Philippi in our heads for a second longer. Imagine for a moment for the, the Roman citizens of Philippi that things go pear-shaped. Maybe there's some sort of a local rebellion or the barbarian hordes from the north come down on the city of Philippi. How are they going to cope? Well, because they're citizens of Philippi, they do what any Roman citizen does. They put their hope in the Savior and Lord. They put their hope in the Emperor. They trust him to come from Rome and to send an army, and to defeat their enemies, and to establish them every bit as firmly as if they were in the city of Rome itself. Folks, that's the image that Paul has in his head in verse 20. Look again. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and we await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our bodies so that we, they will be like his glorious body. Paul reminds us of our great hope that Jesus, the true Savior and Lord, is going to come and, and relieve his people. He's going to relieve us from our oppressors and establish us finally on the earth. Folks, it's a, it's a vision that I, I find hard to, to grasp and hard to hold. I easily retreat from it. I easily fall back from it. I easily feel like a, a defeated minority just trying to keep my head down, trying to stay below the radar. But this is our identity. Citizens of heaven with the emperor ready to come. 
Knowing that this is going to help the believers in Philippi, Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1, stand firm then in the Lord. Do you see what he's meaning? He's not meaning something quite general as in, you know, keep the faith, keep on keeping on. That's not what he's saying. He's saying because you're citizens of heaven and because you know that Jesus, the true emperor, the savior and Lord is on his way, stand firm. Keep your allegiance to him. Let Jesus Christ be your Savior and Lord and not Caesar in this city of Philippi. Tom Wright in his commentary on this says this is the greatest challenge of the letter that the Christians in Philippi would think out what it means to give their primary allegiance not to Rome but to heaven. Not to Caesar but to Jesus. And to trust that Jesus would in due time bring the life and rule of heaven to bear in the whole world, themselves included. Folks, this is our challenge. How do I learn to live in Belfast as a citizen of heaven? I have a dual citizenship. I am a citizen of Belfast. But how do I learn to live here as a citizen of heaven? Rather than allowing Belfast to tell me how to live, I resist and I live firmly devoted to the king. It means not becoming like my classmates, but believing that Christ in me can transform my classroom. It means not becoming like my colleagues, but believing that my workplace can be different because I'm there. It means having an entirely different set of aspirations for my kids and radically different, a radically different, <laughs> a radically different vision for my retirement than the people around me do. That's what it means to be a citizen of heaven. To see it all differently. To live by a totally different agenda. Serving a different king. Our citizenship, says Paul, is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've started at the end of our passage today, and we're, we're going to reverse uh, back through it quite quickly, just for a few moments, to wrap things up. We've been thinking about what it means to be citizens of heaven in verse 20 and following. So let's move backwards and not miss anything that Paul said around this. In verse 17, he says, Join with others in following my example and take note of those who live according to the pattern we give you. Paul says something that I bet you haven't said often in your whole life and maybe not recently at all. Follow my example. Do you go around saying that much? When you meet people in your workplace or in your neighborhood? Be like me. Probably not. I don't feel inclined to say it very often. A few weeks ago when we were starting off our letter, we pointed out, uh, Richie did for us, that Paul's letter to Philippi has a couple of it fits in a couple of literary categories. So we were saying back then that it's a friendship letter. 
So it's a letter one friend writes to others, and and the letter has a lot of friendship language in it. This letter of Paul's fits into another form. It's uh, in the culture of the day, there were letters of instruction. So Paul's writing uh, almost like an older mentor to, to people who he, he's teaching, they're his students if you like, uh, he's passing on his knowledge to them. So the, the way these letters work, you, you basically write to somebody and say, you know, here's some stuff you should do and here's some stuff you don't do. So if I was writing to Kirkpatrick, I'd say, right guys, here's some things you should do and here's some things you shouldn't do. So if I was writing to our teenagers just now, the guys who aren't mostly in the room, Here's what I'd be saying to them at a time like this. I'd be saying, do be sure to work hard these next few weeks for these exams. Do keep going right till the end. Don't allow the opportunity of a good education to pass you by. But I'd also be inclined to say, don't define yourselves by your performance and your results. Letters of instruction, you're right passing on your wisdom to those who come behind you. Quite often you'd use an example, you'd say, here's the stuff you should do, here's the stuff you shouldn't do, and here's the person you should look to. Well, Paul does that in his letter here, but, but he makes himself the example. Verse 17, join with others in following my example. If you flick over to, or look over to chapter 4, verse 9, he does it again there. He says, whatever you've learned or received from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Paul wants these Philippians to follow his example. Why or in what regard does he want them to follow his example? Well, it's, it's obvious almost today. He's talking about being citizens of heaven. And he wants them to be like him to be citizens of heaven. He wants them to stop thinking like some people he describes in verses 18 and 19 very, very quickly. He, he doesn't like this way of life. He's quite strong. He calls these people enemies of the cross. He says they're gods. Their God is their stomach. That doesn't just mean that they like the good dinner. The, the stomach was the, the way you talked in Bible times about appetite in general. So he's saying these people don't be like guys who are driven only by their appetites. Folks, do you realize how fascinating it is to hear that in a culture like ours? A culture where addiction to food and all sorts of drugs and pornography and all sorts of other substances and practices seems to be rising. Don't be, be like those whose gods are their stomachs. Their glory is in their shame. In Paul's mind, there are people in his culture, or maybe in Philippi, who are celebrating things that they ought to be embarrassed of. I wonder if, if that maybe is going on in our culture too. Their mind is set on earthly things. These are people who, they, they simply don't have any other point of view. They're, 
their life is earth-centered. They're bound by the horizons of this world. There's no room for God in their worldview. I suppose if we summarize what Paul's saying here, he's warning the Philippian Christians against remaining or being under the influence of people who are primarily citizens of the culture. Follow my example, he says. And he offers himself as an example to anybody who wants to learn to be a citizen of heaven. Tell me this, who's your hero? You, you maybe, maybe you can answer that straight off, or maybe you need to go home and think about that. You, you might not think you have a hero. You probably do. There are probably people who play some sort of role in your life as people you, you would aspire to be like or would want to emulate. You know, is it the guy in work who's further up the ladder with the bigger salary, the faster car, the guy who looks and, and smells like success? Is that your hero? Or is it the, the woman with the, the better home interior and the apparently magazine lifestyle? Is, is, that, is that what you want to be? This, this text, I think, encourages me to urge you to find a better hero. Look beyond the celebrities. Look beyond the, the success stories so-called in our culture. Find somebody who's a citizen of heaven, whose values, who, who's, who makes decisions because Jesus is their king. Whose values are those of the kingdom. Folks, I, I think, uh, I've been quite challenged about this recently. We're a church that talks a lot about following Jesus. But the truth is, when you read the New Testament, one of the key ways to follow Jesus is to follow people who are following Jesus and who are like him. So whenever I said a moment ago, I don't feel inclined to say follow my example, I wish I did. And I maybe need to learn to. And maybe those of us who lead in this congregation need to start to say, actually... Maybe, maybe a person is entitled to look to me for an example in following Jesus. We're nearly done. As I said a moment ago, we're working backwards through this uh, passage. The opening verse begins at verse 11. And the title in the NIV there gives us a pretty good summary of at least the opening three verses. It's about pressing on towards the goal Paul's been telling the Philippians in verses 10 to 11, if you flick or just look back to those verses about his heady aspirations and his desires for the remainder of his life. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I want to become like him in death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Doesn't that sound really daunting? Like, who on earth is actually like that? Well, not Paul anyway. <laughs> Just in case you think he is. That's what he says in the next verse. Paul knows that he's not perfect. He knows that he hasn't achieved these things. He says, not that I've already attained all this or have already been made perfect. 
It's not that he thinks he's perfect. It's not that he's everything he wants to be. But it's he knows where he wants to go. Look what he says. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. Look at verses 13 to 14. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead... I press towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. In our discipleship groups this week, we asked people in the groups to think about stars. We were thinking of the the passage we preached last week. Think of somebody who shines like a star as you remember your life, somebody you met who really stands out for you. One of the members of our group that, that I was at talked about two older members of this church. One I think is probably in their 70s and one in their 80s. And he talked about their passion for Jesus, how they'd worked well with him for so many years. These guys might be slowing down physically, and they are. But in an important way, they're speeding up to to a sprint. They're like, uh, I was trying to think, well, like, wh- how could I describe that? Does anybody remember Co and Cram and Ovet, the gold? Hands up if you remember. Everybody watched these guys on TV. The golden age of British middle distance running. And the races always followed the same pattern, if you remember. Everybody ran around in a bit of a bunch. You, you could, it was great because when the race started, you could go and make a cup of tea. No one, you didn't have to watch it except the last 20 seconds. So they ran round in a bit of a bunch, and then 200 meters from the end of the race, they kicked. They went harder and faster. I, I, I'm sort of thinking, how does that work? How do you run 1,400 meters and then feel you can run faster? But anyway, they did that. They ran and they ran and they ran, and then they sprinted. That's how these guys that I'm describing are living. And that's how Paul, I think, is ending his life. Forgetting what is behind. Straining towards what is ahead. They go pressing on towards the goal to win the prize. Do you know who I'm talking about? I'm not going to tell you. I want you to imagine... The reason I don't want to tell you is because I want you to find a hero for yourself. Someone in your life who lives beautifully for Jesus. Might well be somebody who's done it for a long time, who's pressing now towards the goal. Find someone who inspires you to be a citizen of heaven. And then follow their example. Join in with them. Let's grow the colony of heaven's king here in Ballyhackamore. Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we would love to live as Paul lived. 
And we've spent this last six or seven weeks as we've studied Philippians making our excuses of why we're not going to do it. The reasons why it was easier for him than it is for us. The reasons why it's impossible to truly be a citizen of heaven in a place like this. Lord, have mercy on us. And put a fire in us. Make us into people who are so in love with Jesus, so confident of his lordship, so hungry to know him and to grow in him, that we will live for his glory. And it will be evident to all who see us that we are citizens of his kingdom before we're anything else. We pray it in his name. Amen.